Good morning. Our scripture text for today can be found in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to, follow, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, well last week, our brother Pasquale mentioned that uh, when we get to chapter 12 of John's gospel, uh, the narrative uh, begins to, to slow down. And it slows down because when we get to chapter 12, John begins to focus in on what church historians have labeled as Passion Week. That final week of Jesus' trek to the cross. It's something that we should know and take note of, that, that in the Bible, when the narrative uh, slows down, when the writer begins to include more details about the events and, and all that's going on at the time, that it should be a clue to you and I that what is being communicate, communicated in the scriptures is extremely important. All the gospel writers, when retelling their account of Passion Week, slow down. And they slow down, rightly so, because the event that took place at the end of Passion Week is at the center of human history. Now, I didn't say, notice I did not say that it is at the center of biblical history. I didn't say that it's at the center of church history. It's true, it's at the center of that, but it is at the center of all of human history. Everything that happened in human history before this week was pointing towards the cross. 
And everything that happened after is seen in light of it. The narrative slows to a crawl because it is the most important narrative in all of human history. Last Sunday, we saw that the week began with the triumphal entry of Jesus as he arrived into Jerusalem, not on a horse, but, but on a donkey. Uh, not the expected mode of transportation uh, for a, a king. But we, we do know that it was according to the prophecy uh, that, that Jesus would come into Jerusalem on a, a donkey. And the people rightly praised and they, they rightly worshipped Jesus, declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel, John records for us. Well, as the narrative continues, John makes mention of some Greeks, and the assumption is that these Greeks are God-fearing Greeks. They've come to Jerusalem during the Passover festival to worship God. Uh, we don't know much else about these Greeks, but, but we do have recorded for us the question, or better yet, the request that they make. They, they come to Philip, and, and they, 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 they come to Philip, and they say, uh, Sir, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, we can't spend a lot of time here, but there are some important insights that this request gives us about the nature of Jesus and his ministry. First, it tells us that word about Jesus and all that he had been doing is, is, is spreading. He is, he is known now throughout the, the world. People all throughout the ancient world had heard about this man named Jesus who was giving sight to the blind, who was making the, the lame to walk, and, and most notably who had just raised Lazarus from uh, the dead. These Greeks had heard about Jesus, and so they come to Jerusalem to worship God, but, but they also want to, to see Jesus. They don't want to see him at a distance. They want to, they want to encounter with him. They want to, to speak with him. See, Jesus' popularity at this point was at an all-time high. The religious leaders may have wanted to put him to death, but everyone else wanted more. They wanted to speak with this man named Jesus. Now note, if there was ever a time to drum up an army and overthrow the Roman government, it would be now. His popularity is booming. He has people, when he enters into Jerusalem, praising him and, and praising him as a king. Certainly, if Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government, if that was his mission to set up an earthly kingdom, this would be the time to do it. But that wasn't the mission. That wasn't the mission. He wasn't seeking glory by way of the people. He was going to obtain it by way of the cross. That's what we learn. 
what these Greeks tell us, firstly. But secondly, the request of these Greeks brings into light again a truth that has been lingering in the background throughout John's gospel. And in fact, it's a thread that's woven throughout all of the scriptures. And that is the kingdom of God is not only for Jews, but it's for all people. All peoples and all nations. It should not be lost on us that at the front end of Jesus' final road to the cross is the mention of Gentiles asking Jesus' Jewish disciples to see him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came for all the peoples of the world. Well, that is, that is all we hear about from the Greeks. They, they, they ask to see Jesus, and, but it's no throwaway. It's no throwaway uh, uh, mention. This is to, to point to Jesus going to the cross, and, and it's also to remind us that the, the gospel, that Jesus came for all peoples. We don't hear from the Greeks anymore. But despite their limited appearance, their request provides the stage for Jesus to clearly articulate what seeing him really means for those who desire to see him. Philip and Andrew take this request to Jesus, and instead of saying, okay, bring, bring them to me, let's find out what they want. Instead of saying, okay, show me where they are, and, I, and I'll go to them, and I will uh, talk with, with them, Jesus instead uses the opportunity to explain what it is, uh, what is about to take place, and it, what it means for people to rightly see him. Seeing Jesus, we will see in our text, seeing Jesus rightly means you are going to have to understand that Jesus came to die and live. Therefore, to follow him means you must come and die, but in doing so, you can believe and live. Jesus came to die and to live. That's what we first see in our text. That's the foundation of all that comes next. Three times in this discourse, Jesus says that his hour has now come. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has mentioned uh, this, this understanding of this hour, right? This specific time. But previously, he had said that his hour has not yet come. You remember most notably at the wedding feast in Cana. When his mother goes to him, right? They, they run out of wine and, and, and he... His mother goes to him and says, Jesus, you, you have to do something about this. They, they run out of wine. And what does Jesus say? My time, my hour has not yet come. But now, in Jerusalem, with his face set towards the cross, Jesus says, the hour has now come. It's here. Jesus was speaking of the appointed time. 
This would be the culmination of the mission. This would be the fulfillment of the prophecy, the ordained plan of God. His, his mission was to come and go to the cross. That's where he was headed. That was the time that was now. It was time to go to the cross. And this is why Jesus, we see him so troubled. Like we read in John 12, 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus' soul was troubled because he knew what this hour meant. He knew where he was headed. He understood the weight and the gravity of the task that was before him. He was going to the cross, you do understand, to bear the guilt and the shame of God's children. He was going to bear, bear the wrath and, and the displeasure of his father against sin. You see, Jesus didn't come just to die peacefully in his sleep. He came to die a gruesome and a painful and a shameful death. Do you see? That's why his soul is troubled. That is why he asked in the garden, is there another way, Father? In this prayer, we see the humanity of Jesus. It often gets lost on us. This is the humanity of Jesus, for he knew he was feeling the weight of the cross. He was feeling it, and his soul was deeply troubled. But notice, he also knew that this hour was necessary for this purpose, but for this purpose I have come. He had come. There was no other way. There was no alternative to the cross. Even prior to his death, his mission was declared. Excuse me, prior to his birth, his mission was declared. Matthew says that Jesus was to be named Jesus because he would be the one who would save God's people from their sins. So he came. That was his task. That was his mission. And there was only one way for that task or that mission to be accomplished. Jesus had come to save. But salvation, because of sin, would only come about through death. It would only come about through death. That is what the, the text says. That is, that is why what Jesus says next is so important. He says in John 12, 24, truly, truly, this is, ex, this is extremely important. He's saying, listen up, listen up. If you're going to get it, you got to hear it. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. And Jesus is using this analogy to speak of his death. His, his point is to make clear that like, uh, like, like seeds that die, when they go into the ground and bear fruit, so his death would produce a life. In fact, not just some life, but, but much life. 
That is the significance of Jesus' death. From his death, life would spring forth. But Jesus would, Jesus' death not died just not so that others would live. It was so that he would be glorified. It's so that he would be glorified. He says in John 12 and 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You, you see, the glorification of Jesus is not just in his death, which is odd that Jesus would be glorified through his death. It's, it's in that. But the glory is also in his resurrection. Jesus came to die and live. That is the glorification that Christ is speaking of when he says in verse 28, Father, Father, glorify your name. And how does the, the Father respond in verse 28? A voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God the Father was pleased with his Son. We heard it at his baptism. We heard it at the, at the transfiguration. He says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He was pleased with his obedience and sacrifice. He had glorified the name of his son's son in terms of his obedient life, but he would do so even more in his death and resurrection. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, right? He was obedient to the point of death, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the, the, the glory of the Son. This was the mission of Jesus. This is the mission of Jesus. This is the fulfillment of the hour Jesus has been talking about. He came into this world. He was born into this world to not just die, but also to live, to be glorified. And all of that is the foundation for the other statements Jesus makes in this text. Everything else makes sense in light of this truth. That, that, that Jesus, like a seed, when it dies, brings forth life. Uh, as we've said before, as it's been said throughout this series, Jesus' death and resurrection give meaning to everything else. And because Jesus died and lives. Because Jesus died and lives, he calls us to do the same. He first says, he first says, come and die. That's what Jesus says, come and die. Jesus, as he always does, goes straight to the, to the heart and explains the countercultural ethos of following him. What Jesus says was countercultural then, and it is countercultural now because the sinful human heart has self at the center of the universe. John 12 and 25 whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
you see the natural inclination of the sinful human heart is self-preservation or self-love. Love yourself. Listen, contrary to what some may think, the Bible does not give you a command to love yourself. It assumes you already do. Why? Because God knows that self-love is never the ultimate issue. We, you and I were created to worship. And because of sin, we don't worship God. Our first worship is ourselves. God knows this. God knows you already love yourself. What is the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. The, the command is not to love self the neighbor. No, the truth is you love yourself already. Now turn your eyes towards your neighbor and love them as you love yourself. Oh, what is the imperative for, for husbands in Ephesians 5 and 28? In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The issue is never. The issue is never self-love or the language we like to use today, self-care. The issue is not to be so infatuated with ourselves. It's we, to realize just how dangerous and tempting it is uh, to, to, to be so infatuated with loving ourselves. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. That's the danger in self-love. Now listen, Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't care for ourselves that we should do away with all pleasure in this world, that we should just become monks and nuns and, and go about our way. But Jesus is challenging what you and I are living for. That's what he's challenging. He is challenging your allegiance. He wants preeminence in your heart. Luke 14 and 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How do you know if you are loving life? How do you know if you're guilty of what Jesus is saying here? Well, you, you can ask, are you, are you simply living your life for the weekend? For the pleasures that come on the weekend, that, that you're now off work, or you can, you can sleep in late, or you can, you can do whatever you want to do. Are you living your life for the weekend? Are you living your life for that nice house, a luxury car, and a and fat bank account? If that's the life you are living for, then Jesus says you will lose it. No matter your success, no matter the success in you, you have in this world, no matter the joy and pleasure you have now, it's futile. It ends in eternal torment and pain. Oh, this, this world, brothers and sisters, doesn't last. And Jesus is calling us not to love this life, not to love our lives. 
But there's a, a contrast according to Jesus. Those who hate their life, they keep it. These are those who don't see this life or this world as ultimate. Those who hate their lives are those who are living for another life. They are not those who are storing up riches here on this earth. Those who are devastated when their political party doesn't get elected. Those who know power, pleasure, and influence in this world doesn't last. That's those are who hate their lives. It's following the example of Jesus who didn't desire to keep his life in this world, but sought to lay it down. This was his mission. So what Jesus says in the first part of verse 26 is not new. He has been saying this throughout his whole earthly ministry. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. He's been saying it all along. Come, come and follow me. And what was he doing? He was leading them to the cross. He was going to show them what it meant to be a servant. Jesus said in Mark 10, I didn't come to serve, but he came, I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve, which meant that he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, the call to follow Jesus is not a call to follow him for a stroll in the park. It's not a Sunday afternoon ride on a countryside road. To follow Jesus is to take the narrow road. It is, it is a road full of sacrifice. It is an uphill trek with obstacles and barrier, barriers. It's going one way, when everyone else is going the other way. It is being made fun of for doing what is right. Uh, following Jesus, you under, do understand, is a call to die daily. Matthew 16 and 24, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Oh, to see Jesus rightly to follow after him is a call to come and die. To lay it down. To lay down your life. This means you have to stop. When you come to Jesus, this means you have to stop believing your way is better than God's way. That's what it means to die. This means that you have to stop trying to save yourself by your self-righteous works and attitudes. You have to realize dead people can't save themselves. It means dying to the opinions and the expectations of others and trading them in for what God says. Coming to Jesus and dying means seeing his purposes and plans, no matter how difficult they are, they are working for your good. Huh. You know what it means? It means seeing that your best life is not now, but it is in eternity. So you can lay down 
your life. You can, you can, you can lose it for the kingdom. Uh, and that is the glorious part about coming to Jesus and dying. Jesus does call his followers to come and die, but then he tells them, believe and live. <laughs> believe and live. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to give life. He came to give life. The goal of his death was not simply that we would follow him to the cross only, but that we would live like he lives, that we would share in his glory. The author of life is not calling his children to die without promising them life. Jesus is a life giver. But eternal life comes, as we have said, to those who believe. It's to those who believe. That's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is for those who believe in Jesus, right? Not, not, not those who believe in eternal life. You don't get eternal life by believing that eternal life is possible. Eternal life is granted to those who believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, for the third time, in this gospel, uses an Old Testament reference. In John 12, verses 31 through 32, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of, the, of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The reference References uh, to Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness when they, were, when they were judged for their disobedience and the Lord sent serpents uh, to judge the people, poisonous serpents, in the midst of the camp. And anyone who was bit by the serpents uh, died. That is unless they believed and trusted in the mercy of God. Yahweh told Moses to make a, a bronze serpent and hoist it up on a pole in the midst of the camp. And he said, anyone bit by the serpent could look to the, to the serpent, could look to the bronze serpent and in the midst of the camp and live. And live. Here is Jesus pointing again to the cross. To what, to what the serpent in the desert foreshadowed. The, the, the judgment of God is at hand. The sin of the world required death, but Jesus came to die. The death he would die was being lifted up on a tree. And all those who would believe on him would live. Would live. Not if. Not if he was lifted up. But, but when he was lifted up on the cross. But not only was he talking about being lifted up on a cross, he was speaking about being lifted up from the grave. In his resurrection and exaltation and into glory and into glory. And when that took place, that's when he would be drawing all men and women unto himself.
Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the path to eternal life. Belief in the Son of Man who was lifted up on the cross for our sin, who was lifted up from the grave and who sits high in glory. This is not, you do understand, this is not the way for some, but anyone, all, all who would believe on Jesus, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, believing on Jesus, everyone who looks to Jesus being lifted up can be saved. Jesus says he will draw all men unto him. Oh, the question, the question, the, the request that those Greeks made that, that, that afternoon or morning, whenever it was, that do you want to see Jesus? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Is that your question this morning? Do you wish to see Jesus this morning? Well, then come and die. Come and die. But look to Jesus and believe and live. And that's it. That's all. That's all Jesus requires. Just believe. Die to your self-righteous works. Die to, to loving your life and believe on Jesus. And you will have eternal life. Oh, he who loves his life loses it. But he who hates it keeps it. This is the call to those who desire to see Jesus. He says, come and die, but believe and live. And here it is. Those who follow Jesus not only follow him in his death and resurrection, but you and I who follow Jesus share in his glory. We share in his glory. That's what he says in John 20, 12 and 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. <laughs> you will be honored with Christ. You will share in his glory. That is the end of following Jesus. We will be glorified with him. And that only comes by way of the cross. That glory doesn't come from people. That glory comes from following Jesus, laying down our lives, believing on him, trusting him for eternal life. The glory, that glory then will be ours. Oh, Jesus says, Jesus says to you, come and die. Oh, but believe but believe on the one who is lifted up and you will live. Let's pray.